I really feel like there's so many cases out there that that are cold. There's 250,000 cold cases in the United States alone. It's known as a silent mass disaster. There's 40,000 unidentified remains. There's so many families trying to figure out what happened to their loved one and who did what they did to their loved one and trying to get justice, that it's such a huge problem. In this episode, Kristen Middleman describes how DNA scientists at the Othram Laboratory outside Houston are making a big dent in cold cases. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here to take you inside a revolutionary crime-solving lab. Until recently, the case of 14-year-old Stephanie Ann Isaacson was part of the silent disaster described by Middleman. On June 1st of 1989, the ninth grade student took her usual shortcut through an empty sandlot as she headed to the El Dorado High School in Las Vegas. She never made it to her 7.30 a.m. class. Her choir teacher noticed she was missing when she didn't spend the lunch hour in her room. Stephanie lived with her father and his girlfriend at an apartment in northeast Las Vegas. When she didn't return home by 4.30, her father, a staff sergeant in nearby Ellis Air Force Base, called the police. He and his friends saddled up horses at the base's stable and started to search the small desert area that Stephanie regularly cut through to school. Four hours later, they found a trail of her school books and keys. Investigators launched a helicopter and a ground search. Late that evening, officers found a zigzag trail where she had been dragged to foliage. A police dog picked up the scent of her body under an orange piece of discarded carpet. She was the victim of a blitz attack. Her black shirt was pulled up and her jeans pulled down. Her shoes and other belongings were missing. The freshman with shoulder-length brown hair who had last been pictured with a wide grin in her prom picture had been sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and strangled to death. Investigators had little to go on besides a tiny drop of semen found on the dead girl's shirt. In 2007, they tested the evidence and obtained a DNA profile of the killer. They uploaded it into the FBI database called CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. CODIS, which you'll hear mentioned later, contains the profiles of individuals convicted of certain crimes. It did not match a convicted offender to the DNA collected from Stephanie Isaacson's shirt. The case remained cold for 32 years, but Las Vegas Metropolitan Police investigators never gave up. In late 2021, they submitted a DNA sample of a mere 15 human cells to Othram, a forensic genealogy lab located in the woodlands, a suburb of Houston. Using new DNA extraction technology pioneered by Othram, the company matched the DNA that had been submitted to a genealogy website by a relative on the killer's family tree. New data led Las Vegas detectives to Darren Marchant, who had never been listed among the suspects. But Marchin had committed suicide at the age of 29, six years after the murder.
Othram specializes in cold cases. It has identified Jane and John Doe victims dating back to the late 1800s. We interviewed Fort Worth cold case detectives who used Othram to solve the murder of 17-year-old Carla Walker after it had gone cold for nearly five decades. It led to the arrest and conviction of her killer, who was then 78 years old. You can hear more about that case in our episode titled How Genetic Genealogy Solved the 1974 Murder of Carla Walker, published on February 21st of 2022. I went to Othram's labs to learn more about their pioneering DNA technology. DNA analysts wearing protective lab garments worked behind glass walls in a contamination-free environment. When I was there, they were taking samples from a human skull to try to identify the victim. I asked Kristen Middleman how Othram's technology is solving cold cases once thought to be unsolvable. If I had to say in one sentence what I think is different about Othram is that we're purpose-built to identify perpetrators and victims from crime scenes. So our DNA testing is purposely targeted towards DNA samples that you would find at a crime scene. What you saw before often was people using medical assays or consumer assays to try and DNA test forensic evidence. Forensic evidence is extremely different from regular fresh DNA that you would give to your doctor if you went to the doctor's office or DNA that you would spit in a tube so that you can figure out who your ancestor is. And so what we do here at Othram is we have created a series of processes. We call them all together forensic grade genome sequencing in which we are able to take intractable DNA, fragments of DNA that would be too small for these medical tests, too degraded, fragments of DNA that are damaged and previously inaccessible in order to give you one of these sequences or profiles that we create, Um, DNA that has been burnt, DNA that, you know, has been contaminated with bacteria or non-human DNA from being outside, being in a sewage tank, the bottom of a lake. You, you think of it, we've probably worked with it. And so we're able to take intractable evidence through our series of processes, and then we're able to create DNA profiles that look like fresh DNA, like DNA that you would get if you went and you swabbed your mouth today. And then we upload those to genealogical databases that are consented for law enforcement use, and then compare them to the profiles that are in there, and we're able to triangulate someone's identity. Well, I'm sure some of the listeners remember science and DNA and the double helix, but take us back. Give us a DNA 101 here, just to explain what is it and what you're looking for in it. Absolutely. So DNA makes me different from you. And we all have our own sequence of DNA that creates a unique sequence that allows you to be able to tell the difference between me, you, or any of the listeners today. What we do here is we have taken the ability to read DNA evidence found at a crime scene in order to help us identify who was at that crime scene. And so there was DNA testing at crime scenes, forensic DNA testing for for decades now, right? Everyone's heard of CODIS testing. That's what um, has been used as a standard for the last 30 years about. 
CODIS testing looks at 20 STR markers in the DNA. And explain what those markers are. Sure. They're a long region of DNA that is variable from person to person. And so if you match in those 20 markers, then the chance of you being someone other than that person is, if you have ever looked at one of those reports, it's like one in 17 quintillion. It's, it's just so astronomically impossible that there's not enough people on Earth for there to be a mistake there. And so there are 20 DNA markers, SDR markers, that they're looking for in CODIS testing, and they upload against a um, the FBI's CODIS database, which has known perpetrators in it. And if you are a direct match, then you get a hit. And you know that that perpetrator had committed a crime before, and it's the same perpetrator that has committed this crime. And you're able to identify that person. But CODIS was there to verify identity, to basically confirm that it's the same person. But it was never created to ascertain identity or to figure out who someone is if you have no clue or if they're not in that database. And that's the difference between what we do and CODIS testing. What we do is we look at hundreds and hundreds of thousands of markers in a human genome. And so we look at smaller markers, they're called SNPs, and they're all over your genome. And there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. And then we create one of these DNA profiles so that when you upload it to one of these genealogical databases, you have many matches. You don't have to be exactly the same person. You can be a fourth cousin or a third cousin or a you know, fifth cousin, you can be really far away, relatives that you don't even know exist. And then we're able to take that piece of, um, of the puzzle, you, and figure out you're this far away from this person, and you're this far away from this person, and you're this far away from this person. So therefore, you fit on this family tree. And when you're able to sort of figure out where they belong in a family tree, then you can provide law enforcement with an investigative lead. So often we call back law enforcement and we say, we are able to tell you that the DNA found at this crime scene belongs to one of these two brothers in this family. And then they take that investigative lead and they contextualize it to the actual crime scene, the location, the time, they figure out you know, could both of the brothers have been there? Did one live in a different state? Did one have, were they somewhere else? Did they own the gun that was used to, you know, potentially commit the crime or whatever it is? And in the context of their investigation, they're able to figure out which one of these investigative leads makes sense. Once they do that, they're able to collect DNA and confirm the identity that we have provided using standard CODIS testing. And so it's pretty incredible because we're, we're still using that legacy technology that has been in court for 30 years to confirm our result. But we're also just, when, when there is no hit with CODIS, and it's a DNA dead end, here comes Othram testing. We're able to identify who that perpetrator is or who that victim is at the crime scene. And then it's confirmed once again with CODIS testing at the end. Once that confirmation is made, more times than not, um, it links to multiple crimes, especially with sex assaults. Sex assaults are not usually a one-time crime. It's a serial crime that happens time and time again. Some of the cases we'll talk about today, um, Christine Isaacson out of Las Vegas, for example, as soon as we identified her, we, uh, we identified her perpetrator, he actually linked to another crime 
in CODIS from three years before, where it was just an unidentified crime as well. And she was a little girl that was walking home from school and disappeared. Later, the body is found. But all these years later, you identify the perp and find out there's more. Absolutely. Um, She was walking to school. It was early morning, I believe. She was 14 years old. And she um, never made it to school that morning. In in broad day, someone picked her up on the path, uh, brutally raped and murdered her. And like you said, that DNA was tested time and time again through all these different processes. But unfortunately, it didn't lead to the identity of the perpetrator. One thing to note here um, is DNA testing is it consumes. It's a destructive process. It consumes the DNA. And so every time you test that sample that was found at the crime scene, you're actually destroying it. And so there was very little evidence left by the time Othram was contacted to possibly help with the case. There was 0.12 nanograms of DNA. Give us a sense just how small that is. It's something you would only be able to see with a microscope. It's about 15 human cells. So if I touch my hand right here with this one finger, I've left hundreds of cells. And so you can imagine it was 15 human cells from a 32-year-old sex assault of a mixture between perpetrator and victim. And we were able to identify who that perpetrator was. That shows you the power of this type of sequencing. You're able to If done correctly with the correct DNA experts that really know how to treat that DNA, you're able to get to take the most intractable or minuscule amount of DNA, trace amount of DNA, and actually get a sequence that you can compare to fresh sequences from people's mouths that have donated to these databases. Now, your husband and partner, David Middleman, worked on the original human genome project. Did this concept that this this lab we're in 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 houston did it grow out of that when when did he he say look we've we've got to do this better for criminology um that's a good question so yeah david um has worked on dna from the very conception of dna he was 15 years old when he actually built one of the first gene printers for the first human genome project um He actually had his first grant before he had a driver's license. It was pretty incredible. Um, I met David a few years after that at Baylor College of Medicine. We were studying DNA repair. Uh, We both ended up in a DNA repair lab. I I made blind mice, and he actually cured them (laughs) um, using zinc fingers at the time. This is before CRISPR, before other gene therapies were made popular. And I knew then that he was probably one of the most brilliant people I'd ever met and definitely one that could fix anything I broke. So I, <laughs> I ended up um, teaming up with him. And for, for decades, we've worked on different types of DNA science. Um, David has, had gone on to help uh, with a thousand human genome project. And actually several people that are here were part of the thousand human genome project and the first human genome project with David. And um, he also helped NIST Um, create the standards that the FDA uses today to um, make life or death decisions using this type of sequencing technology in medicine. And so along the way, he created a lot of the standards that you see in sequencing. He helped with a lot of the projects that sort of set the roadways, the pathways for this type of um, personal genomic medicine to, to exist. He worked on 
cancer research. A lot of us here worked on cancer research. That's when you're looking at a small fraction of the whole being the cancer cells. And and you can imagine that that translates quite well to part of the sample is perpetrator versus victim, and it's usually the smaller part, or part of the sample that you find in a crime scene is human versus all the non-human DNA that you may find at the crime scene. So a lot of this being able to sort out one piece of DNA from the other is is something we learned along the way. Um, David actually, uh, 11 years ago at his own lab at Virginia Tech, started talking about these types of markers being able to be used for forensics and the possibility of being able to identify people using these types of markers. At that time, the technology was too expensive. It was not high throughput enough and it was too expensive to sequence um, one genome for it to be something that law enforcement would be able to use to do what we do today. Explain again sequencing, just in a simplified terms for our listeners. Sure. Um, so sequencing, the best way that I can think of, about it, if I want to think about it in a way that we can speak layman terms, is reading every single letter in your DNA sequence or reading a lot of these letters and the markers that you're looking for in your DNA sequence so that you can get enough information to be able to figure out whose DNA you're looking at. In order to do that, you have to be able to get clear pictures of what is happening um, in that sample that is being processed in the sequencer. And so the way that I think about it is we are using the most powerful sequencer on earth right now, uh, currently available, in order to be able to sequence this type of forensic evidence. It's like using the best camera you can use in order to take a picture. So you don't see all these pixels. Unfortunately, a lot of the testing that's being done in forensics is using equipment that was built 30 years ago. And it it gives you a picture of the DNA, but it's very pixelated. It's very black and white. It doesn't have all the information that it needs. Whereas what we do allows you to very clearly be able to see a lot more markers, a lot more information in the DNA sequence, and then you're able to get a lot more distant relationships when you upload this profile into these genealogical databases, allowing you to identify someone, even if they have a non-white background. I hear a lot things about this technology only being um, available for people that are of a certain biogeographical identity, where I actually would challenge the audience to go to dnasolves.com and scroll down the solved list of cases and look at the faces on the solved list of cases. And you would see that this technology encompasses multiple biogeographical identities. The reason for that is because we are using such a powerful sequencer and getting so much information that you're able to get, um, infer identity from, from various backgrounds. Well, of course your technology enables this, but would it not be possible to do this unless we had these ancestry search online portals now of where everybody's putting their information in is that is that also that's the key it's one of the keys there are, there are multiple ways to help with an investigation and so we don't always use genetic genealogy or forensic genetic genealogy to come to an answer sometimes there are suspects that are already um, 
on a list that the law enforcement have. And just by being able to build one of these DNA profiles, we can include or exclude certain people. Um, it's also possible, like for example, genetic genealogy was something that was really difficult in one of the cases we had worked very early on. Um, it's a case you might have heard of. It was a hiker that had walked and walked and walked. All these people had met him along this trail in the last few months of his life. And then he ended up dying in a tent and no one knew who he was. He had no identifying information. He had nothing on him that law enforcement could identify him from. All of these people that he met along the way wanted to know who he was. He had left a lasting impression with him. They had pictures with him. They had stories with him, but they had no idea who he was. In fact, he had called himself Mostly Harmless. And so he, he got the name Mostly Harmless. And so um, when we built his profile, we knew very early on that he belonged to a village out of Louisiana. Um, I believe it was called Parish, Louisiana. And, um, but we couldn't figure out um, his actual ancestry. There was a lot, there was, it was very difficult background and, and a very difficult mix for, for um, forensic genealogy. And so at that point, um, David and a few other people started to blast Facebook ads to that exact area. Within a few days, someone came forward and said, I recognize him. He was a coworker of mine. We were able to do that one-to-one -one match and we knew exactly who he was and we were able to identify him. And so there are many different ways to take the information from the DNA and actually make sense of it in an investigation. But yes, absolutely, having a DNA database that you can compare against is, is a way to be able to um, triangulate identity a lot faster. So you were able to zero in on a geographic area from the DNA? And what is it that's different about a geographic area that among with people you can pinpoint them? Most places, most geographic areas um, are started by the same five, six families. And then you will see that those five, six families propagate through that area. So if you see that a lot of the matches are in that area, then it makes sense that that person would also be from there. You know, I don't know if you recall this, but many years ago, certainly over 15 more years, National Geographic began a program of collecting um, DNA all over the world, Africa and places. Oh, and they believe that eventually with the intermarriage and everything, the DNA pool, we're going to lose track of races. Is that really correct? Is that, could that, potentially happen or do we know more about DNA now? I'm not going to speculate on whether we'll lose track of races or not. Um, but I will tell you that one of the projects that David worked on was with National Geographic and Spencer Wells and traced the, the Y chromosome all the way back to the original ancestor. Um, actually, one of his first companies, um, Arpeggi. And the Y chromosome is? The male chromosome. and Because I did this. Yeah, like and, that, and yeah. so uh, David's company got acquired by Family Tree DNA. They're the company that has um, one of these genealogical databases that you hear about often. And um, he actually helped build some of those uh, products for them, including Big Y, and work through that um, ancestry and help with a lot of these ancestry tools. It, it's funny because I believe that all of us here, um, you know, 
especially everybody on the science side of the team, we've all touched part of the DNA process that allows you to mix not only DNA sequencing and the computational science that's needed for DNA, but also even the genealogical part that's necessary in order for you to truly trace someone's um, background, identity, ancestry. And I think all put together, it ends up being a super powerful way to be able to say, yes, this is the person that was found at that crime scene. And in fact, I think it's it's a very scaffold approach because usually in an investigation, you have a large number of, of possible suspects. And you're, you know, either monitoring these suspects, knocking on doors and having conversations with them. This way, you're very narrowed in to who actually left the DNA at the crime scene. Every year, U.S. law enforcement recovers 4,400 unidentified bodies. The backlog of cold cases is staggering. The numbers prove that many offenders up until now have been able to get away with murder and sexual assault. I really feel like there's so many cases out there that that are cold. There's 250,000 cold cases in the United States alone. It's known as a silent mass disaster. There's 40,000 unidentified remains. There's so many families trying to figure out what happened to their loved one and who did what they did to their loved one and trying to get justice, that it's such a huge problem. And it's one that's growing every single day in our country that I think if we spend the rest of Othram's time here, we it would take you know, decades to be able to clear these backlogs, to be able to truly identify a perpetrator the very first time they committed a crime and not the second, third, or fourth, and to truly live in a world where there are no cold cases. And so we focus on that. I know that there are a lot of universities, professors that focus on trying to understand what what might make a serial killer a serial killer, but that's not what we do here at Othram. Well, as I've looked at Othram cases, like the Carla Walker case I mentioned earlier, and talking to the uh, homicide detectives who worked the case and work with y'all, you know, it has really struck me after all these years that a lot of people have gotten away with murder and multiple murders when you look at how you unravel and find out there, there are other victims. Uh, what, what would it take to clear this backlog? It really is a... It's a scandal. It's shameful when you look at it. I think the technology is here. It's going to take support from the federal government. It's going to take funding to be able to actually pay for this type of testing. So I'm sure you've heard of the sex assault kit initiative or the end the backlog type of DNA funding that has been given over the last um, decade or so. That was there in order to take the sex assault backlog and solve those cases. So go from untested rape kits that were left on the shelf for decades and decades to, or years, and then take them to actual tested kits. And there's another backlog that's the unidentified remain backlog. It's the same thing. And so often, more often than not, unidentified remains hardly ever have a CODIS hit. I mean, it's about 1% or less. And for sex assaults or crimes, it is also not a number that happens often. It's less, less, 
less likely than even 50%. And so now there's a new backlog of cases. They've been tested and they're still unsolved. You still don't know who the perpetrator is or you still don't know who the victim is. That's when our technology comes in. But unfortunately, there is no funding for this new type of technology. There's not enough funding for this new type of technology. And so um, I've worked really hard here at Authram for the last year or so to try to advocate that DNA testing money at the federal level can also be used for our technology. Because honestly, it would help recapture all of these hundreds of millions of dollars that were used to actually test those kits initially. We still need that CODIS test because that's what's going to be used at the end to confirm the result and to make sure that this is confirmed and correct and it can go to court. But you need that investigative lead in order to proceed and not to stay at a DNA dead end. And we've had a lot of success. There are now several funding programs through the federal government. Also, we've had a ton of philanthropy. People, like everyone that's listening to your podcast today, has, have become a bridge to federal funding. We've announced cases that have tractable DNA, have passed QC. Law enforcement is willing to use this method to solve that case. But unfortunately, they don't have the funding. And we have had so much success having people just donate a few dollars like they would donate for a cup of coffee. And we've been able to solve, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these cases over the last few years. What is the typical expense? It's about $5,000 to do our testing from beginning to end for unidentified remains. It's more, it's about $7,000 for a um, perpetrator just because it's a mixture. In the Stephanie Isaacson case, Las Vegas philanthropist Justin Wu donated money for the testing. It helped police connect the DNA of Darren Marchant to her murder. Three years earlier, the then 20-year-old Las Vegas man was arrested for the strangulation murder of a 24-year-old woman. But the case was dismissed because of a lack of evidence. He died by suicide in 1995. Middleman stresses that none of the cases could have been solved without the dogged determination of law enforcement. She says it in no way resembles television crime dramas. The big difference is that this is their life. It's not a case that they're working on that they go home from and have, you know, there's something else going on or you go on to the next episode and it moves on. This is every day for decades. And these cold cases, I mean, I, I have the privilege of working with cold case investigators. They've worked on this case. They've thought of this case every single day. It's become part of who they are, part of their families, part of their lives, part of their dialect. The families of these victims have become part of their life. It's, it is a much, much more ingrained in who they are than I ever thought. When you watch a TV show, you, you really feel like they can go from case to case and it either solves or it doesn't or they move on to something else and then you're on the next episode. There is no next episode. These people are stuck there just as much as the family stuck there. And not having the truth is, is, is torturous. It's torturous to us and we're only in it for a small time. The time frame in which we get evidence until, until we're able to provide investigative leads is so short in comparison to these investigations and I can't handle it. I stay up at night for case after case thinking about 
why can't I figure it out before this person's birthday comes up again or before the victim's anniversary of her death comes up again. And I can't imagine being here for just three and a half years now. I can't imagine having worked a case for 35 years. I can't. If you would like Othram to help solve a case, go to their website at Othram.com. I have placed a link in our show notes. And if you are interested in learning how to set up a nonprofit to raise tax-deductible donations for a cold case unit, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com and be sure to sign up to join our true crime community. This is Robert Riggs, and I'll be back with another story from Inside the Crime Scene Tape. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our journey into darkness.